It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, you we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the break the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiast of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new heights. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. We be stuck to screens in 1980s. And we came them and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles. Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X era podcast all about professional wrestling. With me, as always, today is Barry. Absolutely, George. Been looking forward to this one, actually. And you know that Aaron is... Hey, hey, hey. Professional wrestling is supposed to be a fun, entertaining activity that can be enjoyed by a wide range of people. Every once in a while, though, a match can get out of hand and put the wrestler in real danger. One of the darkest days in pro wrestling history took place in November of 1996 during an ECW house show now known as the Mass Transit Incident. When we first decided on subject matter for this first season of our podcast, gentlemen, I believe it was Aaron who said, you know what? Let's do some dark shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. And he brought he definitely brought the dark shit, that's for sure. Yeah, he picked out the darkest one I think that we could have started with. I mean, there were some other ones, but this is a pretty sad affair where there was some real damage done to an individual. There was some real damage done to a company. It yeah. was and it wasn't even like this is not like a pay-per-view event or a nationally broadcast television show. No, it was a house this show. Was yeah. A house show like <laughs> at a racetrack ballroom. It was just some people call it the perfect storm of everything going wrong. And I don't mm. know if that's necessarily true, but you can see how if you know the whole backstory on how it developed and how it came into being, yeah, it was destined to be a catastrophe. Absolutely. Well, and I know, you know, Aaron, you picked it up and you gave it the category type. Title, I guess we might say of macabre mishaps and we've done some different to start we already did the Von Eric that was sad for a lot of different reasons this is maybe just as sad but more anger inducing I was about yes. to say the Von Eric's made you sad this one pisses you off it's definitely the dark side of professional wrestling and it's important to talk about it because professional wrestling while very entertaining and very like grabbing of people's loyalty and makes people spend money Money, it also has a really troubled history. Right. And there's risks involved in every aspect of professional wrestling. That's a known. I mean, anytime that you're dealing with stuff that physical, there's always going to be those opportunities. This, however, was a little different. This was less of expected risks and some that came out of left field. Well, of course, you know, with professional wrestling, there's always going to be some kind of shady shit going on in the background. I mean, look at the roots with the uh, with the carnies. So yeah, that's true. good point. Yeah. That's I true. mean, professional wrestling did get its start in the 
carnival sideshow atmosphere of the late 1800s. So no question that is kind of carried over. We've talked about promoters who have not necessarily been on the up and up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the promoter of this company that we're about to talk about, we all know has not always been on the up and up, but this is an incident where it wasn't the promoter who wasn't on the up and up. It wasn't a venue or a money person or anything like that. This was simply a wild card unknown wrestler who stuck himself in the middle of a situation that turned into a nightmare. And I think that the most important aspect of it is to get into how it came to be. So we might as well jump into the meat of the episode right after this break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want to see body slams, if you want to see drop kicks, if you want to see the wildest, the craziest, and the best wrestling action there is in the country, then tune in right here to USWA Wrestling every Sunday at 11 a.m. on Fox 41. Tune in and bust heads with the likes of Jerry the King Lawler and Jeff Jarrett. If you want to see live wrestling action, be at the Gardens Tuesday nights, bell time 7.30. But for the best ringside seat, you have to tune in to Fox 41, USWA Wrestling, Sundays at 11 a.m. on Fox 41. Barry, I know you are extremely familiar, and I use extreme as a bad pun here. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're going to say it right, I'm extreme, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> there goes the vocal cords for the next four recordings. No, so this one took place during an extreme championship wrestling house show, November mm-hmm. 23rd of 1996, at a place called the Wonderland Ballroom in Revere, Massachusetts. Now, I went and looked up stuff because I knew about this thing, but I hadn't watched the video. I hadn't looked up any of the history until you guys brought the subject up. This right. is a ballroom at a racetrack. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The ECW wasn't exactly known for getting the highest quality venues. Mm. So they kind of took, yeah, <laughs> bingo halls, whatever, you know, they kind of took whatever they could get. So when they got this one booked and it, to be clear, as you said earlier, this was a house show. This was not a televised episode. This was not a pay-per-view. This was nothing like that. It was a throwaway house show. And Throwaway house shows are usually done in the professional wrestling business for one reason, to generate revenue, right? right? So the setup for this, essentially they had a tag team match that was scheduled for this. It was going to be Axel Rotten, who his normal tag team partner, I believe, was hurt at the time. And he was going to be in a tag team match with Devon Dudley of the Dudley Boys. Right. And they were going up against a tag team called the Gangsters. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar <sighs> with ECW, the Gangsters were New Jack and Mustafa Saeed. Mm-hmm. But right before the show, Axel sent message in saying that he couldn't make it. He had a family emergency, so he wasn't able to be a part of that show. So it kind of left them a little bit in a quandary to figure out what to do to fill. Yeah. Now, this happens quite often, especially for small house shows. And this is a right. small house show. I've gone yeah. back and watched the video. There's maybe 200, 300 people in the audience. It's a very venue. If the that, ceiling I mean, is low, like maybe 
with the ring being five feet off the ground, the like the wrestlers were maybe six feet away from the ceiling. So aerial moves and jumping off the top right. rope and stuff was going to probably be limited as it was. So this is a yeah. very small, intimate event. I've gone to those events and they're fun. They can be oh, maybe yeah. more fun sometimes than the big high value production stuff. Absolutely. They get the crowd more involved. Well, yeah. And that was just common for ECW, but even if you go to any show, they're a lot more intimate, like you said. So initially there was a performer they had, and I'm not going to use this word, but I will say little people wrestling, Tiny the Terrible and Half mm-hmm. Nelson. They were scheduled to do a handicap match against a new performer, a guy by the name of Eric Kulas. Mm. He came to the ring dressed like a bus driver and his gimmick was kind of the Ralph Cramden gimmick and he called himself Mass Transit. So I want to ask a couple of questions because I read the note that you put in (laughs) on the card on this and I've watched probably 15 different interviews from wrestlers Mm -hmm. who were at that show that day. Blue Meanie, New Jack himself who was involved in it, Devon Dudley. I've watched a whole bunch. And the thing that you're saying here that he was scheduled for the show with these two guys, none of them say that's what really happened. They say that what really happened was he showed up up. with those two guys and tried to pitch his Ralph Cramden character to Paul Heyman, who was known on screen as Paulie Dangerously at the time. And he was trying to convince him to let the three of them wrestle in this handicap match, but it was not previously scheduled for the show. Well, they had done matches in indie form beforehand. He had, Eric Kulas had actually done small, very small independent ones. I think he'd had like two matches and it was in handicap form. It was usually against little people and he and Tiny the Terrible were actually good buddies. They had known each other for going into this. Tiny got into ECW for this match. That's kind of how Eric got his foot in the door. But here's the part that people forget about. Kulas tried to convince Heyman that he had, you know, he's 21 years old. He had been wrestling for Killer Kowalski. He had trained Mm -hmm. by him, you know, and anyone that knows anything about historical wrestling, you hear the name Killer Kowalski. It it rings synonymous. It's He's considered to be one of the legends and the legendary trainers of the sport. He's right up there with like Stu Hart. I mean, you say those names, those carry a lot of weight. Well, there's a slight problem with all this. Number one, Kulas had never trained with Killer Kowalski. Right. He had never trained with anyone. And number two, he was only 17 years old. Yeah. And I want to be careful because while I have said to you guys ahead of time that I don't want us to be a fact drivel type of podcast where we just recite fact after fact. I want us to enjoy the thing. I also don't want us to misreport. Now, I know that you got this information from a credible source, but Mm -hmm. there's no where that I can find of any wrestler who was at the show, any interview that I can find that talks about Tiny the Terrible or Eric Kulas being scheduled for that show. Every single person says that both of them just simply showed up with the third member, Half Nelson, and they went into the locker room telling everyone that they had, that Kulas had been trained by Killer Kowalski. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because Blue Meanie's interview in particular talked about how Killer Kowalski was known for bringing his students with him to yes. house shows, right. introducing them 
to the promoter, using them as jobbers in the house show to get his trainees a little bit of real, like live performance training, and also provide a service to the promoter. And oftentimes (laughs) there was a little bit of a backdoor deal where the promoter would give Killer Kowalski a little bit of cash for doing that. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't just Killer Kowalski. That was kind of commonplace for a lot of promote, a lot of trainers. No, and I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that in this particular case where people are, where we're getting facts that are saying things were scheduled and planned, they mm-hmm. were absolutely not. I don't want us to convey the sentiment that these three individuals were scheduled in any way whatsoever to be at the show because that's an important part of this story. Okay. And most of the information that I got from that side of it was from the interviews with the, with Tiny the Terrible. He's the one that said that he was on the booking. There are other people that says he wasn't on the booking. As of yet, I haven't found any extensive interviews with Paul to find out if he actually said that they were on the card or not. No, Paul hasn't given an interview on this specifically because of the legal issues. Right. Well, that's true. And I mean, it's that that came in later on. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, he doesn't really talk about it very much. So really, the one person that would have the most foothold on knowing what the plan was isn't talking about it. So, well, I would say this, there's a little bit of logic that we can use to deduce which group might be telling the truth and which one might be not telling the truth. Number mm-hmm. one, there are at least seven individual wrestlers that don't really have a stakehold in the storytelling at this point, because it's 20 years later, the interviews that I watched are just from like two years ago on most of these people. And they're all having the exact same story. It's very hard to coordinate that guys tell the same story. That's, you know, 20 years in the past. And they're also being interviewed by different people on different channels. Number two, tiny, the terrible is saying that he was booked into this show, but little wrestlers oftentimes had to come with other little wrestlers as part of some kind of gimmick. Yes. There's no way he, he would have been the only one booked for the show. It would yeah, have had to have been at least he and half Nelson, even regardless of Eric Kulos being involved in the match. It would have had to have at least been him. That's a fair point. And right. Honestly, I, I don't know if Half Nelson is still with us or not. I haven't seen any interviews from him when I was doing some digging on this. it's I think a lot of people have taken this incident and honestly, either that's all they want to talk about or they don't want to talk about it at all because it really was a black eye all the way around. Right. So. Yeah. I, I can understand there being a lot of multiple stories A lot stories of misinformation, possibly. Especially on how it started. Yeah. Once it right. actually got into the ring, that's a different story because well, everybody saw that. Well, once it got in the that. ring, everybody knows because there was a camera there at this yep. event. And I'm convinced that the camera was an ECW camera based on the video that I watched and the movements of the cameraman and mm-hmm. the access that mm-hmm. the cameraman had compared to the other fans in the video. But Aaron, I want to bring you in just for a second. Yeah. You have been a professional wrestler. Right. You have been in a house show locker room. Yes. You understand the etiquette that's involved. You understand the way things work, because even if your organization is super small, like the one that you were a part of in Hawaii, or it's super large, like the WWF, there are certain things that are probably very similar. Oh, yeah. I'm curious to know, how easy do you think it would have been in the 90s for a couple of little people wrestlers and an unknown to get access backstage to that locker room in the 
the venue that they were in, which was this ballroom that it's not set up like a civic center or an auditorium or something like that, where there's gates and everything like that. It's literally a ballroom with, with some dressing rooms off to the side that were probably bathrooms at one part or another. How easy would it have been for these three individuals to walk in and try to get into the show? Well, barring any kind of security, which a lot of indie shows really don't have a whole lot of mm-hmm. easy. I mean, yeah. you know, I've, when when I was wrestling in Hawaii, we had people that would walk into the to the dressing room looking for autographs. We like get the hell out of here! You know? Right, <laughs> you're not supposed to be back here. It bre- it breaks the kayfabe, you know, seeing the wrestlers because for the most part, you know, we're all friends. You know, there's a respect that uh, that you give each other. And if I let's say you and I are wrestling, and you know everybody loves you because you're the good guy, and I'm like, ah, fuck George, you know, I'm gonna kick your ass. You know, seeing that, seeing us talk and share a meal or drink or whatever after the match or before it breaks that that immersion yeah and, it might ruin the story right and the fans aren't yeah. supposed to see that sure i it's i love how you explain that because i have been fortunate enough to go backstage at some big events due to yeah. friendships and whatnot and at those events those larger companies like a wcw at the time they have the ability to pay real security people usually local security for each event they don't travel with the company but they have the ability to pay real security at smaller shows like i went to a Florida Championship Wrestling Show, and this was just before it got rebranded as NXT. So this is even still an affiliated product with WWF at the time. The security were the wrestlers themselves. Yeah, a lot yeah. of times you'll see the that. trainees and, and stuff. I think it's because the promotions, being as small as they are, they can't really afford to pay the extra people. We already know, we've talked about it in the past, especially during the 80s, 90s, 70s, they weren't paying the wrestlers hardly anything. 50 bucks, right. 100 bucks a match at, you know, if you were a headliner, maybe two or three hundred dollars a match or something. The promoters right. were, were really running a very slim budgeted show. So I figured that was probably the case, but I just thought it was Im- it was important to point out because these three gentlemen, regardless of whether you believe Tiny's story or the other wrestler story, right. it was not a difficult thing to do to walk into a locker room. Now, I watched one interview in particular a couple of different times, and it's the Blue Meanie. You guys know the Blue Meanie. He was trained by Al Snow. He had a really fun run with a thing called the Blue World Order there for a little while. <laughs> and the Job Squad. <laughs> and the Job Squad. But I think what intrigued me the most about his interview was he's one of the wrestlers who didn't really have a dog in the fight of the story. Right. He didn't benefit fit one way or the other from telling the story. And so I watched his interview multiple times because I've also been told from other people that know him, he's considered to be one of the more truthful professional wrestlers. Yeah, he's definitely reviewed as an upstanding guy in that. (laughs) And I thought it was really interesting, the story that he told about how Eric Kulas inserted himself in the situation, Barry, that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. with Axel Rotten having to skip out on the show and Devon Dudley needing a partner for the tag match. Right. And I think that plays a big factor into it as well. Think about it for a second. You're Pauly Dangerously. You just had one of your headliners have to call out at the last minute. Mm-hmm. You're open to any suggestions that are being thrown at you at this point, especially since it's a house show. You know it's going to be a throwaway, but you also don't want anybody to leave disappointed. Sure. Right. You want to make sure you're holding as true to the card as you can be. Well, in walks this guy who's spouting all these credentials, says that he's done this, he's done that, he's had this experience, and he wants to jump into this match. I'm kind of hard pressed to fought Paulie dangerously on this one because he was a man under a bad situation at that point. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the very first ever nine-man three-way dance of death as the Sandman, Balls Mahoney, and Axel Rotten take on the three Dudley boys and New Jack, Cronus, and Spike. It's a lesson in extreme brutality available from ECW Home Video, Cyber Slam 98. No matter what business you're in, when somebody doesn't show for whatever reason or calls in or no shows, you know, it always leaves you in kind of a in a bind and kind of scrambling for what to do. It does. And some people tend to panic. And I think Paulie Dangerously, Paul Heyman, kind of panicked in this situation because yeah. with hindsight being the ultimate wisdom, right? I think if I'm in that spot, I don't believe I make that decision. I think personally, I would have told the three men to go out there and do a handicap beatdown of Devon Dudley and yeah. end the show in the way that the gangsters would have been in character of just unfairly beating down another wrestler, because that was kind of their shtick. Any way they could cheat, take weapons, even though they were faces in the ECW fans' eyes at that point yeah. a little bit, because the ECW fans were rabid about loving violence. Violence. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. the gang were one of the most violent tag teams in ECW history. Yeah. I, could, yeah. I, I Paulie Heyman, Paulie Dangerously, I'm going to take this unknown kid who walked in with the two little wrestlers. Mm. No, I'm going to go with my guys and say, let's put a beat down on Devon Dudley. And maybe we can turn it into an angle where Devon and the Dudley boys go against Axel Rotten and his partner later on because of the betrayal. And don't get me wrong. Right. I'm not saying he made the right decision. No, I'm I saying I could understand where he's in that spot. And here comes somebody offering a solution to this problem who is claiming to have the credentials that he's got. Well, it's a house show. You know, yep. worst case scenario, people forget about it next week. So yeah. and you're only showing be- it in front of two or three hundred people like we exactly. Right. I could see where that would be a viable option to consider. It was also not in their backyard. We should point that out. This is in Massachusetts, and it's not in Philadelphia where their main facility and their main audience was. Now, Aaron, I also wanted to ask you this question because from the wrestlers' interviews, they all were pretty much on the same page with this next piece of information. Eric Kulas was walking around backstage, and according to them, he was doing things that made it very apparent he didn't know anything about being in a professional wrestling (laughs) locker room. They said that he walked around talking the whole time, which if apparently you're a new wrestler, you're supposed to just come in, put your bag down, shut up and say, yes, sir, no, sir. And that's about it. Number two, when he heard about the match issue about the person not showing up, he went up to the promoter and said, put me in coach, put me in coach, put me in coach. Number three, once Heyman agreed, he went over to the three experienced veterans and told them, here's what I want to do in the match. Now, Aaron, you're a professional wrestler do those things not set off a ton of red flags that this guy's <laughs> oh, not absolutely to you? <laughs> they absolutely do you know first of all like like you said you know you go there you put your bag down you sit down and you shut the fuck up 
you should try to build a rapport, but do so in a very respectful manner, especially if you're just coming in off the street when you don't lie about your credentials either. As far as going to the promoter, kind of let them make the decision. Don't offer any suggestions, especially if you've never wrestled for their product. And while you might have ideas as to what you want to do in the match, everybody you know has that kind of creative spark. You go to the experienced wrestlers and be like, hey, what do you think about this? How can could we work this into the uh, into the match? Not like, hey, you know what? I want to do this. I want to get color. You're going to do this spot. I'm going to do this spot. No, you just absolutely not. That's to- totally wrong. And yeah, it sets off a ton of red flags. So Barry, you did all the research for this. Yes. I want to know from your point of view, because I know you watched a lot of the same interviews I did. Mm-hmm. You've think probably that the reason why these red flags weren't maybe apparent to Paul Heyman was he was busy doing a bunch of other stuff because the wrestlers certainly noticed it. They did notice. And it's funny that you bring this kind of stuff up because, you know, we were going to start on this on the, when we were talking about the match a little bit, but the pre-match, when they were going through the whole process on that, I've seen interviews with New Jack mm-hmm. and I've seen interviews with Devon and both of them said that both of them were looking at each other going, are you sure about this? You know, they're raising a lot of questions in the process of what this guy's asking for. Yes. And Devon made a comment in one of his where he said he he thought maybe the guy was doing it because he didn't have the skill set to be able to do much more than what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So that was really the only reason why he went along with it. Gotcha. Because it was just like, you know, okay, well, if you don't know how to take a bump this way, then we're not going to ask you to take a bump this way. That kind of thing. So I can understand that a little bit. But to Aaron's point, yeah, everything about that was raising red flags left and right, especially one particular request that Kulas had asked for. You know, I know the request you're talking about, and I think Mm -hmm. we should talk about it in this section because this is a section where we talk about how the match gets planned and set up and how it came to be. The activity happens in the match. (laughs) Yes, that's true. All right, Aaron, let me ask you this. You've had quite a bit of ring experience. You've done this professionally. How willing are you as a newcomer when you first started going on this? How willing are you to ask your opponent to blade you? Absolutely not. If it's if okay, let me kind of backtrack just a little bit. If you're going in with a friend, you know, tra- a road partner, somebody, somebody you that, trust, some, right? Somebody you trust, then it can be acceptable. But under no other circumstances do you ask somebody else to blade you. It's you don't know, or the other person doesn't know how deep is too deep for you. What your pain right. threshold is. I remember the first time I did it, I was scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a follow up question: Would you ever ask? New Jack to blade you. You probably didn't have to ask as we've talked about his history, but I think you're right. I was about to say, that guy's going to jump in and start stabbing people no matter what, so it doesn't really matter. But It's interesting to me, Aaron, because the things that you're saying are the exact same things that Blue Meanie said in his interview where he was talking about that was the crazy part that all three of the veterans who were in the match looked at him like, what are you asking? Yeah. And I know, Barry, you said, you know, New Jack, of course. Yeah, I'll do whatever. You know, that's no problem. But New Jack was an anomaly of wrestlers. Very few other professional wrestlers would agree to do that to another person, let alone ask somebody to do it to them. Because like you said, Aaron, they don't know your pain threshold. They don't know your skin. They can't feel it themselves when they're cutting you like you can when you're cutting yourself. And blading, we need to let our audience know we're using that term. And it's a pretty well-known term amongst wrestling fans at this point, but for people who maybe are just coming into the wrestling world and enjoying talking about or hearing these old stories, 
Blading is where you take a razor blade. That's where Mm -hmm. the term started from, at least. And you slice a part of your usually your forehead. Yes. Sometimes maybe other places, but the forehead, because a you can cut a very small amount and get a lot of blood that doesn't really hurt the person or damage them or make them weak or put them in a vulnerable medical situation. It bleeds like hell. Yeah, exactly. The wrestlers refer to it as getting color. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, exactly. It's more for the effect. Blue meaning called it gigging. I was like, that's a gator term down here in North Florida. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do to a frog. Hawaii, that's what we called it was gigging. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, George, usually what happened is the wrestler would have a small fragment of a razor blade, usually wrapped up in tape somewhere. Somewhere, so they didn't cut themselves accidentally during the match. With or just like a little their- corner exposed. Yeah, right? exactly. Or like stuck in their tights or something like that. And when the camera was off them or when they were down, they would make that small nick and go from there. It created what I one of my favorite wrestling terms of all times, the crimson mask. Because anyone that's ever had any kind of a, a head wound knows you bleed like crazy from a head wound. And that's exactly what they were going for. And the bleeding and blading mm-hmm. are really what make this story what it has become the legendary dark part of ECW. And we've talked about, you know, the people involved. We've talked about the setup. We might as well just go ahead and jump into the match now. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. So you think Jerry Springer and South Park are controversial? You ain't seen nothing yet! It's the lutest, the rudest, the crudest, the most insane, the most severe, the most extreme form of sports entertainment legal in the United States today. It's ECW Extreme Championship Wrestling, and we'll be in town Friday night, August 14th. Call Ticketmaster now. Now let's get into the match itself, because the beginning of the match was actually kind of boring. There wasn't a whole lot going on because, well, Eric didn't know how to do anything. Eventually in the match, the gangsters started to double team him inside of the ring. I think they had thrown Devon out and he was immobilized or something Mm -hmm. like that. And this is when all hell broke loose because they started hitting him with crutches, with toasters with chairs with anything they could get a hold of which in any other wrestling organization would have seen way outside of the pale this was ecw this was normal that was their gimmick and it became new jack's gimmick in his singles career afterwards he would literally bring down a trash can full of objects and he would I remember in the video that I found online of this incident, when the gangsters come down to ringside after, you know, mass transit and Devon Dudley do a bunch of audio with the Mm -hmm. fans on the mic in the ring, he comes down with that big giant trash can full of, like you're saying, crutches and shovels and everything else. He had a cheese grater. (laughs) And he throws it over the top rope from the ground into the ring. You know, at that point, it's not a regular match. Now it's going to be a beat down. Yes. (laughs) Here we go. And 
<laughs> and it goes on through all this. They're proceeding to just beat him down. And at the very end of it, Kulas and New Jack had agreed on using a surgical scalpel because honestly, that's probably the safest way to actually get color on this. The problem was that when New Jack went to blade Kulas, he bladed too deeply. Mm -hmm. And instead of just giving him like a little razor nick that was going to give him color, he actually severed two arteries in his forehead. Yeah. And so a surgical scalpel, Mm -hmm. it's obviously for surgery surgery, all the way through (laughs) a body versus a razor blade that's been taped and just has a little corner of it exposed. Right. Right. If anybody has ever used an exacto blade that's mm-hmm. not too dissimilar it's kind of the medium between a regular razor blade and a surgical scalpel right it's right. got the long razor blade attachment that's yep. exposed it's just as important though to talk a little bit about the events of the match because i watched the video that i was able to find on youtube and the video is very choppy there are definitely yep. edits in the video which is why it leads me to believe that this was an ecw cameraman and i'll explain it's not just the edits Mm -hmm. The camera actually gets right next to the ring in several cases and is through the rope. So you're getting a full view of what's going on. The camera then at one point, there's a place where Devon and it might be Mustafa. I can't, it was kind of grainy. It was a little hard to tell, but Devon and one of the gangsters goes out into the audience off to the side. It was Mustafa because that's when New Jack was really working him over Mm. with the forehead and actually pounding on his forehead. Yes. And the cameraman who's plowing through the crowd, he's yelling, get out of my way, get out of my way, get out of my way. You can hear the audio and people are parting the way for him, which we've talked about the fans in ECW. They're not typically what you would consider considerate. No. So (laughs) I can't imagine that they would have gotten out of the way unless it was an official organization cameraman like if it's just some guy with his smartphone you know walking around and this is 1990 so smartphone is no not really a thing but i think that the video that i saw it absolutely had to be an ecw camera and that to me because of the edit makes me think that paul Heyman at some point decided there's no way this original footage is getting out so he did as many edits as he could reasonably but still have something that when the lawyers asked for it he could turn over that's possible i mean the only other possibility that i could think of is if it was a recording from the venue, if they had somebody at the venue who'd been given the rights to record it. But that's, it's not unheard of, but it's very, that would be outside of the norm for most places. In the research I did, there was, there's, they said that it was somebody official that was taking the video. I couldn't gather if it was from the venue or from the promotion mm. itself, but they said it yeah. was somebody official that but was. But it was somebody official. So that's why the fans parted the sea and that's why the right. person was able to get close to the ring. Everything that I watched on the video felt normal until they get to the part where Kulas is laying on the mat because like mm-hmm. I said, there were a lot of jump cuts in this where yeah. they didn't show the whole match. It's in its in its entirety, it's really only a five-minute video on YouTube, and they show Kulas laying on the ground with the medical technician, the first medical technician that got to him, and you can see throughout the rest of the video, the rest of the three minutes or so, she never once takes her hand away from his forehead as she's yeah. trying to keep pressure there, even when the other medical people there, like there were some fire and rescue people that were there, like EMTs, some drivers, some yeah. policemen, EMTs, yeah. when they get into the ring with her, and they're 
you know, asking what's going on and evaluating the situation, she still is desperate to keep her hand on his forehead because of those arteries you were talking about. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also important to note what actually became the giant shock, the big reveal, if you will. After he got bladed and New Jack is proceeding to just drop elbows on him and pound on him and everything else to open that wound up. Now, once he bladed, this guy screamed out in pain and eventually passed out Mm. because he was just covered in blood. Oh, yeah. But, you know, New Jack, there's footage of him actually kind of checking on Eric and saying stuff like, are you all right? Are you all right? He got no response. So he figured, okay, keep going. Yeah. Well, (laughs) well, in the process of him pounding on him, Kulas's father was at the match. Yes, I forgot about that part. In the front row and proceeded to start screaming, ring the fucking bell. He's 17. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the edits happened in the video I got to see. Yeah. Now, from my understanding, is Kulas's father had actually vouched for him when he was talking to the promoter. See, I never heard anything about anyone vouching. I thought this was all on Kulas. It's possible, I guess, because, I mean, right now there's so many different stories going about how all this kind of unfolded at the beginning, you know, whether somebody vouched for him or not. The only question I would have about that, though, Aaron, is he claimed to be 21 years old. So then technically he wouldn't have to have anybody vouch for it. Well, true, but a unknown person, young, and true. since he wasn't 21, he either had a fake ID that was easily you know figured out or he didn't have an ID at all. He probably got his father to say, yeah, he's 18 or he's 21 yeah, or whatever and age he was telling him. Yeah. That's very possible, yeah. What I'm curious about is why would anybody trust his father? He's not a professional wrestler, is he? No, his he father, wasn't I think known was- to anybody in the organization as far as I can find. And to your point, Barry, all the different stories out there, the one commonality that I did find about mm-hmm. his father is the part that everybody saw that happened where he's 17, ring the damn bell. Yep. If his father was that concerned and wasn't in on his son trying to sneak in on it in the first place, so he wasn't in on the deception... Why wasn't he screaming that shit at the beginning of the match? Why was he there at all? He was in the deception from the very beginning. The only thing I can figure on is since the blading decision was made backstage, it's possible that his dad didn't know that he was going to make that call and think, okay, this is just going to be a standard wrestling match. You know, may it be a little hardcore. Okay. He may come away with some bumps and bruises. All right. No big deal. If that was a decision that Eric made backstage with new Jack without his dad's knowledge of it, then that would make sense because that's when dad starts screaming when he gets bladed and is just passed out instead of, to your point, George screaming about it through the entire match when he's getting the crap kicked out of him with multiple different weapons before that. Right. Well, and I think too that I understand let's give the father a little bit of leeway. Let's maybe, you know, give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt kind of mentality. Yeah. The I think the reason why I don't is being a father and being someone of reasonable intelligence and also being a fan of professional wrestling as I am. If I was super concerned for my son's safety, I would A never tell anybody he wasn't a certain age. I would tell them his real age. I would be not allow him to try and attend and become a part of this event in the wrong way by lying and cheating to get into the back room and get himself a part of the event and see I would have recognized as soon as the match comes out where he walks out with Devon Dudley and they announce that it's going to be against the gangsters. I'd have been screaming my head off right at that moment because I know what the gangsters do in their matches. 
Yeah. I mean, you make some valid points. And the interesting thing that I found about the whole thing is when the EMTs are in the ring and they're trying to take care of Kulas, New Jack, in true New Jack fashion, grabs the mic and proceeds to spew forth this racially tormented evil towards the people of Boston. They weren't even in Boston, but <laughs> right. I guess it's close. The I guess city they were in the state. Yeah, exactly. And, and he makes the quote, and I, I can't misquote this. He said, and I quote, I don't care if the motherfucker dies. He's white and I don't like white people. Yeah. This, again, any other organization that would have put this on the map, that would have closed that organization right then and there. Oh, yeah. That would have been the end of story, you know? He goes on to say other things, too. And in the context of today's modern society, this is a phrase that would have gotten him ousted from everything forever canceled. It would have probably irreparably harmed the organization so much that they would have had to shut down, which they nearly did for not this comment, but for the activities themselves and what the Kulas family attempted to do later, which we'll talk about in the next segment. But But he, throughout his life, he was known for controversy. And you guys know, I'm fine with controversy sells. We've talked about it before with the Eric Bischoff books and stuff. Controversy creates cash. Yeah. But this was not controversy for salesmanship's sake. This was him, I think, lashing out because he realized he had been deceived, allowed it to go on in the thing that he felt was his chosen career, profession, however you want to term it. For all the faults that New Jack has, he held the business in high regard. True. Right. Very true. And to, to your point, George, anyone that had seen New Jack and Mustafa perform prior to this they were not above playing the race card through mm. any of their games. No, it was part in of the gimmick. Yeah. That was part, exactly that was part of their game. It was back when they were in Crockett promotions. It just went all the way into ECW. I mean, that was their shtick. They played it to the hilt. And to be honest, with that element, there weren't too many people that were better at it than they were because they would take it to such an extreme that everyone would be uncomfortable by what they said. Yeah. So it wasn't unheard of to hear that, but I guess it was just the idea that here's this kid laying on the mat, bleeding to death, and he's trying to to keep heat. You know, it just threw me off. It felt like it was over the top in the situation. But I think also because we now know what happened later, it even magnifies how over the top it was. And there's a large portion of the story that happens after the match. The match itself is, you know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was. It's not a long period of time. But the consequences that were suffered by Eric Kulas and ECW and New Jack himself lasted long beyond that day in 1996. So we might as well get into the aftermath of the mass transit incident right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's WCW live at the Richlands High School Gym, Thursday, October 21st, 7.30 p.m. In the main event, Cactus Jack faces Yoshi Kwan. 
And Arn Anderson takes on Brian Pillman and more. Tickets available at the high school and Save-A-Lot Supermarket. And don't miss WCW in Johnson City on October 22nd. You haven't seen WCW till you've seen it live. As I stated at the end of the last segment, tons of things went on. So I'm going to have to run through these as quickly as possible. And Barry and Aaron, you guys just hold on and <laughs> see if a lot. we can get through this for our listeners out there. First of all, Aaron, you mentioned in one of the notes that this ended up canceling out one of ECW's main revenue sources, their very first pay-per-view event called Barely Legal that was supposed to happen Christmas Eve of that same year. Right. Because of the the backlash from it, the I can't remember the production company that would uh, put on the pay-per-views, they wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. It wasn't until later Paul Heyman was able to get them to allow pay-per-views with some caveats. Blood had to be at a minimum. The They pushed the time from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. So it was actually put back on the schedule. I think it was in 97, April or May of 97. Yeah, I remember watching it and it was you could tell just by watching that pay-per-view that everybody was kind of like looking over their shoulder, trying to make sure that they don't do anything to screw up on that one. Not just revenue sources. There were also a bunch of legal issues that happened. Now, I know there was an interview on Inside Edition where Kulas and his family, they showed footage of the incident. Now, I know the video that I got was from, you know, some professionally recorded system, but they had video themselves that they played on that show with New Jack cutting him, berating him and everything. I think that was all done in service for the lawsuits that, in my opinion, I think they kind of had this planned from the beginning. There's too much coincidence for me to believe that this was just a random set of events. Well, I think the biggest thing was the fact that they did the interview on Inside Edition like right before they launched their lawsuit against ECW. Mm -hmm. And they made some claims like Paulie never checked his ID, that he was an unprepared victim in this. I mean, they... It was really a matter of this is their story versus what Paulie's story was. So, and it was very polarizing. It feels very much like a McDonald's hot coffee incident. Yes. Right? That's a good analogy. I mean, he's not an unprepared victim. He went there knowing he hadn't been trained, never been in a wrestling ring, doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Ask somebody else to blade him. It's no, it's completely frivolous. Well, and the interesting thing that I found out about this was they didn't just take law legal action against ECW. They took it against New Jack specifically. Right. Absolutely. Because I think in their minds, any place they could grab cash was fair game. And we talk oftentimes in the podcast about how we agree or disagree with actions that wrestlers take. And we have made no secret of the fact, and I certainly have made no secret of the fact in other wrestling podcasts that I've done. I don't like new Jack. That man was a detestable human being. He was one of the worst stains on the professional wrestling industry that I've ever seen. And I wish he was never a part of the sport that I love, but In this particular case, I think I agree with the jury, which found him innocent. Yes. Right. Of criminal charges, and they found him innocent of civil liability. Yeah, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. That's the thing that amazes me about this story. Unfortunately, Eric Kulas ended up passing away in May of 2002 due to complications from gastric bypass surgery. Well, the family of Kulas took New Jack back to court. That's true. Because they claimed that he had developed depression 
and because of that match, therefore leading to an eating disorder, which prompted the fatal surgery. I mean, don't Ugh. get me wrong. I understand fruit of the poisonous tree in a legal term and the arm bone is connected to the knee bone bullshit kind of logic. <laughs> right. But it feels like every time that they were attempting a lawsuit or bringing this subject up, it was as much or more about a cash grab than it was about, yeah. you know, some kind of justice for their child. Because right. yeah. Writing if you go back something. and read the court papers that were submitted on these lawsuits, and I've read a couple of them, not everything, because it's there's so much. The stuff that comes from the Kulas family and their legal team, their lawyers, A, it's usually written very poorly. Yeah. So it feels mm-hmm. like they didn't get very good lawyers. B, the accusations that are made in the legal documents, if you look at them from the very first civil lawsuit to the last civil lawsuit, every time they change and try to put a different spin on things because they know they've already lost in a previous lawsuit. It's as though the lawsuits and the arguments and the situations continually get watered down as you go through the different documents. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, the bad part about this thing is this never went away. Mm. And especially for New Jack, New Jack ended up passing away in 2021, but it's been told, and I've seen this in interviews and stuff, up until his dying day, not one time did he ever express any kind of remorse about what happened. Even a final tweet that he had on his Twitter account stated that Kulas requested the blading. It was the last thing the man said on Twitter before he died. (laughs) That does feel fit with who we know him to have been. I mean, there are other situations where he absolutely intentionally tried to hurt and or kill another wrestler. Right. And it fits with everything that I've ever heard of, seen from his own lips about this individual. So I'm not saying that New Jack is without blame in this situation. I'm saying that he is innocent of what he was accused of by Kulas and the Kulas family. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. 100%. That being said, I think, Aaron, your category title of macabre mishaps is probably apropos in this because it is dark and scary and horrible. And the mishap part of it is also applicable because you're talking about a lot of people who made simple mistakes that had they taken just a few minutes to think, we probably wouldn't be talking about this incident today. Uh, I definitely agree with that. It was a snowball effect. Yeah. And whoever started the snowball, it it doesn't really matter at this point. You know, it's as far as I'm concerned, to your point, George, everybody is somewhat at fault all the way around on this. Nobody's hands are clean. No. And, uh, you know, you say where it started. I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind who's looked at this objectively. It started with Eric Kulas. Yeah, yeah, he's the one with the idea. He's the one that came to the venue. And it happens from that point forward. You could say, well, this person should have done this or that person should have done that. But had Eric Kulas not decided to go to that venue that day with his two friends and his father, this event never happens. So while I agree that there's plenty of blame to be shared, I think the original sin, so to speak, sits with Eric Kulas and, you know, rest in peace. I'm sorry that you passed away. And I, regardless of how he put himself in a situation to pass away due to depression that he 
derived maybe or maybe not from this particular incident, there's some responsibility that has to be taken. I agree. I 100% agree. Absolutely. It's a sad thing. Nobody ever wants to see a human being pass away for that kind of a thing, but it's one of the dark sides of wrestling. And it's important that we talk about those as much as we talk about all the super happy moments that we share on this podcast. I agree. And more importantly, this gives us the opportunity to close the door on New Jack for a little bit. Yeah. Right. Now, closing doors is one thing, but opening doors is even better. And in our next <laughs> podcast, we're going to talk about opening doors on historic wrestling venues. So when you talk about the wrestlers and you talk about the organizations, just as much a part of that in the territory days was where they performed their art. Absolutely. And it's going to be so much fun to dig in deep on all the different places that professional wrestling has been held. Well, and some of them are just so damn iconic. They're almost as popular as the wrestler themselves. Oh, oh absolutely. Omni. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd sneak that in. Yeah. Got to represent Southern wrestling. All right. Aaron, thank you so much for bringing this topic to us. It's been dark, but it's been fun. Barry, as always, thank you for being here. Absolutely. I'm just glad Aaron didn't blade us. So <laughs> oh, there's still time. <laughs> and fourth listener, we appreciate you most of all. And we will talk to you next time. Bye bye. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude and Jake would be the break. Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip-hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Buckles and Territories, we be stuck to screens in the 1980s and we can't fit in the